This has been episode 15, Earth, Wind, and Fire. We'll catch you next time for a very another special episode. It'll be a movie next time. We know what we're yeah. doing, but we're not going to we're not right. going to tip our hats here on uh, on that. So uh, catch you next time for CFX. This is Jeff and Slip signing off. All right. And I also came to a very simple conclusion, which seems so obvious, yet at the time was a great breakthrough for me, which was to create a sequel which started the second after the original ended. Phantasm, the delusion of a disordered mind, a phantom, a spirit, a ghost. For nearly four decades, it has been contained but evil always has a way of breaking free. Tommy's gone. <laughs> it's hard to believe. It was a good idea not to let your little brother come to the funeral. Yeah, hey, I don't like this place. Something weird is going on up there. The funeral is about to begin, sir. What's wrong with you? There's something up there. I saw it. You got some kind of an overactive imagination or something? I know you're not going to believe this, but these things were here. Oh, give me a break. Okay, I believe you. What we got to do is lay that sucker out flat and drive a stake right through his goddamn heart. Gonna run that tall bastard straight down to hell. You play a good game, boy. But the game is finished. Now you die. Phantasm. This one doesn't scare you. You're already dead. Phantasm.
hot as love, you know. <laughs> You go to heaven, you go to us. Graveside service is about to begin. Nice. All right. Welcome. Episode 16. Phantasm. Hot as love. Wow. Here we are. This is the movie. And uh, if people are a little confused about the intro, why don't you explain what happened? Slip with that. Right. So this... I should say this episode is going to be different uh, than anything we've ever done, right? So we have only done one movie so far, which was The Force Awakens, which was part of a huge franchise. But in the case of Phantasm, we're going to go over the whole franchise in one episode, or we're going to try. Uh, It's going to be epic, and hopefully it is more coherent than some of the plots of the actual movies. But we'll see. But what we did is um, all of the Phantasm sequels for the most part, start where the last one left off. So you heard that clip from director Don Coscarelli at the beginning of the show describing that phenomenon. So we decided to do a little gimmick of the same thing. So we uh, played the last bit of the last episode, Earth, Wind & Fire, and just started right where that left off, just like in the spirit of Phantasm. There you go. Uh, You know, we're we're pulling out all the stops for our listeners here. So hopefully uh, people uh, appreciate that. So Phantasm. Phantasm is a is a movie uh, franchise, as you say, that has occurred over multiple decades um, with the same basic characters and, frankly, the same basic uh, conceit. So for those people who are listening who have never seen Phantasm or don't know anything about this, uh, these movies or the franchise, this episode may be a little weird. We would recommend, honestly, go and watch at least the first couple of Phantasm movies before listening to this episode. Um, or won't make a lot of sense, or listen to the episode and then go watch the movies uh, to check things out. But let's give a little bit of an overview of what this, the basic conceit of the fran- uh, the franchise is, the, uh, the Phantasm franchise. So the movie uh, series, as it were, centers around three core characters. Um, and when it starts off in the early, the first movie came out, and we'll give more history in a few minutes here, but in the late uh, 70s, right, um, it started uh, started off with a young character named Mike, who was a, you know, 12, 13-year-old uh, young teenage boy. He had an older brother, Jody, who was about 10 years older, and they had a, a friend named Reggie, whom uh, we will sp- speak a lot about in this episode, because I, I got to confess, there's a little hero worship going on, at least with me <laughs> <laughs> and, and Reggie in, in a lot of ways. But these three characters have a nemesis that weaves in and out of all of the movies called the tall man um, who operates kind of like an interdimensional soul stealing operation out of a, out of a mortuary, a morning side uh, mortuary, which we'll talk about. The tall man has uh, various minions who operate on his behalf and they take the form of what are essentially Jawas from Star Wars. I, I don't you know, right. know exactly. They call they end up calling them the lurkers later in the series, but okay. they are amazingly like little Jawas. They're little Jawas. Little, yeah. Yeah. Evil, evil dwarf like creatures wearing the same kind of like a uh, robe get up and, and all that, too. Um, and what came first is actually an interesting story we could talk about. Um, the tall man seems to have a particular interest in, in Mike, the character Mike, and Jody and Reggie play various roles along the way uh, as the plot unfolds. 
And the uh, the plots, there's five different uh, movies in this franchise spanning in time again from the late 70s until the 2015 time frame even. And the movies play back and forth across different timelines and employ uh, maybe even abuse a variety of uh, was it all a dream uh, conceits. So anything you wanted to add to that basic uh, background about these movies, Slip? No, I think that covers the basic structure of the overarching plot of all of the franchise. But we're going to go into more detail on each film as we go film by film. Yeah. But before we do that, let's why don't you give a little more background on these characters? Yeah. So the the main character, at least in, in my estimation, is a character named Reggie, played by uh, the great thespian Reggie Bannister. So um, there we have another character who's so himself that he has to be named, have the same name as his character. You can well, say the same about Mike Pearson as well, played by A. Michael Baldwin. He's right. got the same name. We've yeah. often referred to that in our other, you know, Happy Days has that phenomenon as does what's happening, right? We've referred to that in the past. Right. And many other TV shows seem to have Marion Ross, right? Uh, right. From Happy Days, as you just mentioned. Um, Reggie Bannister, uh, is plays the character of Reggie and maybe it's appropriate because he's not really an actor per se. He's more like a personality. And I'm going to play a little clip here of Reggie Bannister, the actor talking about Reggie, the character. So take, check this out. Uh, Reggie is an ice cream man, likes kids, uh, likes to play music, just a good guy, uh, good, loyal friend. And I think you get all of that. And especially by the time the, the end of the picture comes when, when Reg takes over for, for Jody, uh, with Mike. And I think that you see that, that Reg really just all he really wanted to do, man, was, was have his little ice cream parlor and, and play in it. Sharing their life. And I would love them together. We went to an ice cream parlor in Alhambra, California, and they built a little stage for me. Whoa! And I actually recorded about three of my songs straight through. They uh, filmed them. So when it came to Bill and I sitting on the porch playing something, I was very gracious, of course, because I had my music in the picture, right? And Bill was a musician, singer, songwriter. I said, well, well, Bill, what do you have? He was playing in a band at the time, and we just started, you know, playing. So uh, Reggie is talking about the other character, uh, uh, Jody, uh, played by Bill Thornberry, who is also a musician. The sitting here at Midnight Song played in the opening clip was them in the first Phantasm movie, uh, jamming and singing, playing uh, that song. So Reggie, um, the character of Reggie, he is, as he says, an ice cream vendor. Um, he is a, seems to be pretty successful one. I mean, he has a truck, he has a whole outfit. He dresses like an old timey ice cream uh, man. Um, he, the actor, uh, if you've never seen him before is an amazing visage. He kind of is rocking that very classic now bald man ponytail and in, in various lengths and to, to varying degrees. Um, he, the actor was, is a musician, you know, he's talking about uh, his songs. He has always played in bands, um, and he played in bands, um, you know, throughout the entire, uh, history of the series. Um, and you could see him play uh, sitting here at midnight on YouTube, you know, with, and, and doing duets with Bill Thornberry, the actor who plays Jody, if that song really did something for you. 
Uh, Reggie Bannister, the actor, was a Vietnam uh, vet veteran, and he, uh, you know, put his military training, I think, to good use in, in this franchise and fighting the tall man in various ways. Um, his look and his kind of sad sack character, in a way, um, is played off for laughs, you know, throughout the franchise. In here's a little mini clip from uh, Phantasm 2 where the Mike character says this about Reggie. You're a bald middle-aged ex-ice cream vendor. Thanks, Mike. So, that, you know, it's played for comedy, his kind of look, but he's really a badass character. As uh, we should, we should yeah. interject. I should interject a little bit here about this because the in the first film, he's really a supporting character, but by the second film and throughout the rest of the series, he's the main character of the series. Yeah, more more so than Mike, who's the main character of the first movie. I think Reggie becomes the hero of the films. And what's funny is watching these films, he really reminds me of just like if my uncle Raj was like <laughs> hero of a series. He's like he's not like that he's not the world's greatest actor, but he, he is so relatable as just a regular Joe. And I think that's why he's so appealing to the fan base and appealing to us. You know, he's so regular in a way. But so badass in another way. Oh, yeah. Well, it's great to see. I could imagine my Uncle Raj, you know, uh, being a badass, you know, all of a sudden, although he's, you know, kind of a hippie who's against guns. So I guess that wouldn't really work. The, but the it, I just think of him because, yeah. you know, it's kind of just like this old hippie guy, like, uh, come to life and thrown into this world. And it's so relatable in a way. Reggie is, uh, in earlier movies especially, but I think even in the later ones, he reacts to things a lot. He's, um, his main purpose seems to be to react to the craziness that's going on in the movies. And in a weird way, uh, kind of reminds me of Larry of the Three Stooges, where his, uh, roles really to react to the antics of like a curly and a mo and things like that. And I love Larry. So maybe that's one of the reasons why I like uh, Reggie. Um, you know, uh, critics basically comment a lot about Reggie that he's kind of an unlikely action hero. Like you were talking about uh, slip. Uh, one of my favorite quotes um, is that he uh, brings both uh, authority and a sidelong look of helplessness to the character, which I thought was uh, uh, funny. So, yeah. True. Reggie is 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 absolutely my favorite character, which we'll talk about more um, as the show goes on. But let's go on to the others. Um, there's the tall man who's the nemesis of this whole series. This is um, a character who is um, the mortu mortician, I guess. So runs the mortuary, who's sort of the, the evil overlord of this empire here. Um, he's played by an actor named uh, Angus Scrim, which is a pseudonym, uh, Rory guy is it his his real that's name? that's right yep and he you know character actor longtime character actor did a lot of other things but the tall man as a character is less of a like a freddy krueger going and slashing people directly although the tall man does mix it up in scenes i kind of think of him more of as like an evil ceo um he has lots of minions who go off and do um his dirty work kind of like the jawas that slip was talking about um, but it's a little bit different than in typical horror movies like you would see in a in a Halloween or a Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street type thing with, uh, you know, Mike Myers and Jason and Freddy Krueger and so forth. Um, you know, one thing that is also common of this franchise, which is common of all the other ones I just mentioned, is the bad guy seemingly can't be killed no matter what you do. And that kind of trope comes back again and again. 
I mentioned the character of Mike, who started off the series as a teenager, a young teenager, um, and plays a central part in the tall man's ambitions uh, as the franchise progresses. And we'll talk about that when we get into each of the movies, played by a Michael Baldwin. Um, and then finally, the other main character, and there's lots of, of minor characters, is Jody, Bill Thornburg, uh, the musician that was talked about at the beginning and also in the sitting here at Midnight Clip. He is the older brother of Mike. He's about 10 years older. And, you know, he starts off the movie. And this is something that's kind of funny, talking about personal appearances. He starts off the movie, um, you know, Phantasm 1. He's a really a handsome, young-looking dude. Uh, kind of reminds me a little bit of a, of a David Hasselhoff type. And then by the later movies, he's kind of fat and bald and old. And I just remember my wife talking about, thinking he was kind of hot in the first movie and just going, ah, what <laughs> yeah, happened? He definitely, yeah, he, he let himself go a little bit. I, I think one thing uh, about all these characters that's interesting too is the tall man and Reggie are pretty constant. They're kind of the same across all the films. Mike and Jody kind of go through a transformation, which we'll discuss as the films go on. They become right. kind of different than they were in the first movie. Uh, but but again, uh, you know, we'll get into that. Why don't we get into our personal histories with these this franchise? Yeah, I mean, mine is pretty short and to the point. Um, I saw the first Phantasm movie sometime in the 80s, obviously not in the theater. Uh, it had come out in the late 70s. I did not see it then. I saw it maybe in the mid-80s sometime, uh, maybe in a theater in a re-release or something like that, maybe on, on video, um, but loved it and thought it was really cool. And I had uh, a friend I've talked about on the show, uh, I still friend, Craig, who um, is really into horror movies, was back then. And so I saw a lot of horror movies uh, through him and with him. And I'm, I'm certain that I probably saw Phantasm originally with him and, and others that we hung out with. Um, I saw Phantasm 2, I think, in either in high school or right after high school. I, I think I saw it in the theater. I'm not certain I saw it right when it came out. It could have been a, a re-release of it. But I saw it um, pretty soon after it came out. And then and I and we'll talk about the details of it. But then I really got into the whole franchise in the in the mid 90s, um, in the late to mid 90s, actually, a little bit later, maybe 97, 98, when I uh, met my wife and she was really into these movies, too. And there, there was a Friday night kind of horror movie show that we used to watch um, and it was like Joe Bob Briggs or something like that. I know he oh, has, yeah. A, yeah, he has another one now, but he had like a different show way back when. And he, they played Phantasm a lot and he'd always make these wry comments about Reggie and stuff like that. And we loved these movies and we watched them whenever they came on and we thought they were awesome. And we've been huge fans ever since. So maybe I'm tipping my cards a little bit about where I come down on this, but uh, that's sort of my personal history. Okay, so I'll go into mine. Um, mine starts right when the first one came out. I did not see it, but I remember the trailer. And I remember hearing about it from kids whose parents were cooler than mine, who would let them see R-rated movies. I was uh, 10 years old uh, when this first came out. And so I, you know, obviously my parents wouldn't let me see it. The first R-rated movie I got to see was the next year, Blues Brothers. It's a very different kind of movie. Uh, and the first horror movie, R-rated horror movie I got to see was the year after that, which was is one of my all-time favorites, uh, American Werewolf in London. 
So I did not get to see this when it came out, but I remember this movie and other kind of horror movies of the time, such as Halloween, which would come out the year before this and was massive, had a very, had a mystique around them for me and, and the kids my age, you know, it was kind of the same mystique that something like Animal House had. It was a movie that we all wanted to see, but we weren't allowed to see. Right. right. Yeah. And so that's where it starts with me. Um, and I also, when I watch this film, I think about the way the characters are related to each other, right? So we have Mike uh, is the young kid and he's got these older, he's got this older brother, Jody, who's kind of the cool kid. You know, Jody, you see him, as you mentioned, he's handsome. He looks kind of like a young David Hasselhoff. He's got his Rolling Stones t-shirt on. He's um, driving a, a really cool hot rod, a car we'll talk about a lot, the Hemikuda which is another star of these films. We didn't mention uh, two of the main characters when we talked about the characters we could mention, which are the Hemikuda, which is in all the films, and then the Spheres, right? The, right. the Sentinel Spheres. Um, those are kind of other stars of the film. And I remember seeing the trailer with that sphere and it was absolutely unique and terrifying. And But I also remember when I look back at this, I think about the older kind of cool kids that I knew. Like my, I had a cousin, Skip, who was kind of like Jody. You know, he had a track player in his car and he was listening to the stones and he was kind of the older cool guy I looked up to and it's kind of the relationship Mike has to these characters in a way uh as far as the seeing the original movie I did see it on video in high school uh me and my friends would go to tower video I think I've mentioned this before in episodes uh where tower had this cool cult section and of course phantasm was just in the horror section but we rented a lot of cult films and and stuff um, and we rented Phantasm. So I got to see that in high school. And then uh, there was this whole phenomenon in the late 80s, early 90s of these dollar theaters. I don't think they have them anymore, but they used to have these dollar theaters that would play movies that had kind of run, been through their first run. Yeah. And and they were, you know, maybe six months later after their initial release, they would play them. And I saw Phantasm 2 with a couple of friends, high school friends during the summer in between college because it was 88. I saw that at the Dollar Theater, and I remember enjoying that at the time. Uh, as for three, four, and five, I had never seen them before two weeks ago. Uh, I kind of knew they existed, but I didn't really think they were worth watching. But Jeff had mentioned doing the franchise, and so I thought, well, I love the first film, and I enjoyed the second film, so let me watch these three. So I've pretty much shotgunned these movies. Nice. And, and, um, but the most important thing and the most interesting thing that I did was I wanted to do some research on the history and the making of the movies. And I was lucky enough to find, uh, I was lucky enough um, to uh, find Don Coscarelli's audiobook. So Don Coscarelli is another person we haven't really talked much about. He is the one who created these, this universe and created these films. And the story of making these movies to me is as interesting or more interesting than a lot of the films themselves. Uh, Don Coscarelli wrote a great book called True Indie, Life and Death in Filmmaking. And I would highly recommend anybody to read this book. It is absolutely fascinating. And he is kind of an American hero to me now after, after reading this book. He, is, he kind of shows what an independent filmmaker has to go through and how resourceful they have to be to work around limited budgets and challenges and constant rejection. Um, but he has persevered. And so we'll be talking a lot as we discuss the films. We're going to talk about what we think of the films. We're going to talk about this, you know, some of the more detailed plots, some of the other characters that are introduced along the way. But we're also going to talk about some of the stories in the making of the films, because I found this to be just as fascinating 
as the films themselves. After college, I lived with my friend Brad, who was an aspiring filmmaker. And he was one of these guys who was really a technician, which I think is similar to Don Coscarelli. It's also similar to people like J.J. Abrams, or, you know, we mentioned him before, and George Lucas. You know, these guys who are very good at, at the technical side of film, maybe not as good at the script side of film, which we'll talk about. Um, but Brad was very technical. And I had another friend, Jesse, who was really smart, one of the smartest guys I ever met. And he, uh, I met him in Japan and he was an aspiring filmmaker too, but he didn't really make any films. He was a writer. And he actually wrote his way into USC film school. <laughs> uh, he was so smart. He wrote these essays and he kind of made up these fake films that he made and he kind of conned his way in. But once he got into USC, he found he really didn't like it. And I think a lot of people get confused when they want to become a filmmaker between liking film and liking making film. So right. Jesse was much more intellectual. He was much more about writing and he eventually went on to study English and he's an English professor now. And he's like an expert on Jane Austen and he's written several books on him. He's really smart, but he was just not into the craft, you know, the technical side. Whereas my friend Brad was like, he made his first film for a, for an intro film class. And the, the instructor showed his film again to all the classes and stopped it at each point to show all the cool things he had done. Cause he had, you know, these camera tricks and stuff he would use to do special effects, even though we had no money. I was in that film uh, as kind of this hapless guy who is like in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. I remember there was one shot where I dropped an orange into some contaminated water and then we cut and it's a dragon fruit, which is this weird spiny fruit as if the orange had been uh, changed by the radiation, right? And then there was another time he wanted to remake his own Terminator and I was the Terminator. He put like foil and stuff on my face. like for, <laughs> you know, So it's really funny. So I just, when I read this book, uh, the Coscarelli book and explored these films and there's also a great, we'll probably talk about Phantasmagoria, the documentary that was made in 2005 that Jeff introduced me to that goes over the making of these films as well. I was fascinated with this and it just reminded me of my own experience. So I just wanted to bring that in. So that is... Uh, that is uh, our stories with this film. Now we're going to do the section we normally do, which is kind of the zeitgeist. What birthed these films? What was what was going on at the time that created Phantasm? Well, obviously, this is the uh, era of the 70s. This is the era of exploitation film, right? And genre films, horror filmmaking becoming a really big thing. And these films are often had to be made outside of the studio system, right? These filmmakers had limited resources. But the one thing we'll talk about again is horror films make money. You know, even low budget horror films make money. So you have these filmmakers like Roger Corman, who was a producer, right? He made films throughout the 60s and 70s. He's a giant in filmmaking. Um, you know, he made all these Edgar Allan Poe films with Vincent Price, et cetera, for very limited budgets. Um, and he was all about making money. He was, he was very much uh, about making money. Then you have someone like Larry Cohen who made It's Alive and Q and The Stuff, which is another one of my yeah. favorite 80s films. Um, he's, again, a very independent filmmaker who was really about creating exploitation films to make money. And then you have a true horror genius, George Romero, right? He made this film, Night of the Living Dead in 1969, that created a whole subgenre that we still, uh, you know, is still popular today with The Walking Dead and uh, World War Z and zombies. And he, right. he would also make Dawn of the Dead around the time that Phantasm was made. 
And those were huge influences. Now, also, we're talking about the whole horror franchise idea, right? You know, we know the famous horror franchises, Friday the 13th, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, right? The Saw movies are a modern one. But this goes way back, right? The first horror franchises were the universal horror pictures. You had uh, Dracula, right? And then with um, Bela Lugosi, you had sequels to that. Dracula's Daughter, Son of Dracula. You had King Kong, Son of Kong. You had Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, right? And then you have these franchises, and those are kind of this franchise. They're franchises that don't feature the same hero. I guess you have Van Helsing, right, in Dracula, but you don't really have the same hero in the Frankenstein films or the King Kong films, but you have the same villain. And of course, in Phantasm, we have the same villain, the tall man. And the tall man, as we'll discuss, has kind of become one of these iconic villains. Um, But you also had the Omen, right? You had Damien, you had Halloween with Michael Myers, uh, Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees, Nightmare on Elm Street, a movie that I will argue was really owes a lot to Phantasm uh, with Freddy Krueger, right? And then you have horror franchises that feature the same hero, right? We talked about Reggie. And in this case, we have really Reggie and Mike and kind of Jody, although whether he's a hero or not is open to question, as we'll discuss. Of course, one of the most famous of these is Evil Dead, right? Yes. Ash, played by the inimical, amazing (laughs) um, Bruce Campbell, right? And then uh, I was trying to ask my wife this, you know, what are some franchises that have the same hero? And I was an idiot because I forgot one of the most obvious and iconic ones, which is Sigourney Weaver's Ripley in the Alien series. Yes. Right. So she's in pretty much all of the Alien films. But Phantasm is unique in more ways than one. Right. And one of these is that it has a heroic car that is featured in all of the films. It is a a 70s hot rod. The Plymouth Barracuda or called the Hemi Cuda because it's a souped up Cuda, right? And this film, uh, this car is actually owned by Don Coscarelli himself and it's used in all the films and it plays a very important key role in you the know, tone and of the films. Just one other thing, you mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street, the Nancy character from the first one comes back in the third one too. That's right. And in the seventh one, yeah, uh, the uh, New Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Oh, so she's another that. hero. It's like, oh, it's great. It's great. It's kind of, it's very meta. It's kind of of that screen. Okay. It's, it's worth watching, actually. It's one of the better ones. Um, that's a fun series. It's, it's, it definitely gets into horror comedy. And we're going to talk about horror comedy when we come to Phantasm 2 yeah. and beyond. Um, so the other, the other zeitgeisty thing about this era is this is the classic era of practical effects. And I think we're going to talk about practical effects a lot. Now, what are practical effects? Practical effects are effects that don't use computers. They have to use real life, uh, solid hardware. And there's a lot of creativity around this that is so fascinating to me. You know, I look back at our episode on The Force Awakens, and you may wonder, why didn't we talk more about the making of that film? You know, we talked a lot about the production, uh, you know, as far as the, the transfer of power from Lucas to Disney. But we didn't really talk about, you know, the how the sequences were made because it's fucking boring. You know, it's just a guy at a computer. Right. right. You get some software use and it's amazing. And these guys are really skilled and it's not to downplay that. But there's just not a lot of interesting there. You know, at least with Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, there were a lot of old fashioned techniques like 
forced perspective to make the hobbits look smaller, which is like a technique from silent film era. And there's models. And, you know, there, there was that film was almost like the ultimate independent film, but at a massive budget because it has such a character. Those does that series of films. Uh, but Star Wars Force Awakens, you know, it's just not that interesting. Um, the original Star Wars making of is absolutely fascinating because again, there's all these practical effects. They had to, they had to be resourceful, right? Right. And I think with Don Coscarelli, he had to be extra resourceful because he faced smaller and smaller budgets uh, with these films for the most part. There are a few that had higher budgets, but again, higher is relative, right? Higher, we're, we're talking, these are all low budget films uh, relative to the, the, the money making, you know, how much money films cost at the time they were made. Uh, and so you have like, you know, I mentioned Dawn of the Dead. You have Tom Savini making these incredible effects in Dawn of the Dead. A few years after this, you have Rick Baker. He won the first Academy Award for makeup uh, for his incredible effects in American Werewolf in London, which I think still stand the test of time today. And a lot of these films, like John Carpenter's The Thing, made around this time a few years later, it still looks good, right? I think a lot of Phantasm still looks good. And so it's amazing what these guys were able to do with little money. I also should mention... Phantasm is unique among the horror franchises, maybe a little bit with Nightmare on Elm Street, but I would argue it's more surreal. It is more abstract. Yeah. These are almost art films at times with how abstract they are and how uh, convoluted and, and dreamlike the logic is of the plot. And I don't think anything else really compares to this in that way. And, and again, we'll get into that. But um, I should mention that one of the influences that Don Coscarelli one of the movies he saw that kind of made him think it's okay if it doesn't completely make sense. It's okay. If it's a dreamlike thing, it was uh, Dario Argento, Dario Argento's Suspiria, which had just come out around this time. And he was, you know, that was a huge hit and it's, you know, Dario Argento's films. If anybody's seen them, they're really fucking scary as hell, but they don't make a lot of sense. You know, it's, it's really funny. Uh, so let's get into the um, movies then. So I want to talk a little bit about Don Coscarelli's career before Phantasm, because I think it's really important uh, to know that because it informs a lot of the decisions and choices he made over the years. Um, so Don Coscarelli's background is fascinating to me. You know, he grew up, you know, he was born in Libya, which is weird, but his father was in the military, of course, at the time. And then his father uh, got out of the military and started this real, pretty uh, successful investment business. Uh, in the Los Angeles area. And I would say Don Coscarelli's childhood was pretty idyllic at that time. You know, like a lot of kids at the time, he was really into monsters. He had a subscription to Forey Ackerman's Famous Monsters magazine. You'll see a lot of, if we do other films, you'll see a lot of filmmakers of this era were into that magazine. Um, he also watched a horror film, uh, one of these horror hosts TV shows called Chiller. So he was really into horror growing up. But I would say one of the most impactful things that happened to him was he saw 2001 A Space Odyssey when he was in junior high. And this film, you know, as it did for many people, completely expanded his idea of what movies could do. Sure. Right. And, and I also think it's structure. It's kind of set pieces. Uh, it's a series of set pieces and its plot isn't really linear. It's like almost like a series of different movies put together and it's more showing, it's telling story in a different way than a typical narrative. And I think that was a big influence on what Phantasm would do because it's similar, right? Um, 
you know, as a kid, it was kind of funny. He started making movies really early. You know, he's just like a lot of families. His parents had a Super 8 camera. So he started using that with his friends. And he like, was like really, uh, Bob Crane did, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, not not quite uh, as oh, Korean as okay. Bob Crane. Um, so he he made one thing he did that was funny is in junior high, instead of writing the paper, he asked the teacher if he could make a film. And he made a film. And it was so the teacher was so impressed that he the teacher actually let him make films for other people. So he started making films for other students uh, to turn in for their projects rather than essays. And he also uh, he got together with a friend, Craig Mitchell, and they started making other movies together. One thing he did is he went to his father for money, which again we'll get to later because his father actually financed the first Phantasm film. And he said, I want to make commercials for people. So can you kind of front me the money? And his father did give him some money and he went to the YMCA unsolicited and said, I'm going to make a commercial for you. And so he made this commercial called the YMCA is where it's at. This is like <laughs> a 15 year old kid making this commercial for the YMCA. And he, and he gave it to them. And he didn't hear back, but then they started showing it on local television, his commercial, you know, he had like kids popping red hots and, you know, it was an anti-drug uh, commercial for the YMCA. And he had kids like taking red hots that were supposed to be like speed, you That's know, funny. uh, it's really, really kind of funny. Uh, he made a, a, a more elaborate film that was kind of this anti-gun violence film called And You Should Be a Man, My Son. He entered it in a film contest. It didn't win, but, uh, you know, it kind of showed his, his ambition very young. He went to UCLA. He met a guy, uh, his roommate, Paul Pepperman, who would work on him for the first uh, few films of his career. Uh, he worked on, he helped him uh, produce Phantasm. He helped him produce The Beastmaster, which we'll refer to. We're not going to go, The Beastmaster is its own whole phenomenon. We're not going to go into that too much, but we are going to reference it as part of the timeline. And so we helped him with that. And uh, during UCLA, you know, he'd seen a lot of, uh, he had taken a lot of film classes and a lot of filmmakers would come and show their films. And one of them was Peter Bogdanovich. I uh, showed the last picture show, which would be an, a big influence on Don Coscarelli. But he dropped out after a year because he decided, you know what? I'm going to make a feature film. 18 years old. Uh, and at 18 years old, he, Paul Pepperman, and Craig Mitchell made this film called Jim the World's Greatest. And it's this weird movie. It's completely different than the kind of cult films Don Coscarelli would make later. It's a drama. You know, it's it's very influenced by the last picture show. It's very somber. I, you can watch it all on YouTube. I've tried watching it. It's not very good. Uh, but the funny thing is it did introduce a few. And and uh, another thing that's funny is it stars a young Gregory Harrison who would later go on to fame as the kind of heartthrob of uh, a TV show, MASH spinoff called Trapper John MD. Right. Uh, very young Gregory Harrison was in there. But these guys were, you know, just teenagers making this. And they, uh, during casting, they got very, two very important uh, people to play a couple of the roles. One of them was a character actor named Rory Guy. He was older. Uh, he was a very experienced actor. And he also had another job as a writer of album liner notes, mostly for classical and jazz albums, but he'd written uh, liner notes for Frank Sinatra albums. And he wrote a little uh, liner notes for a little album you may have heard of called Meet the Beatles. Wow. So uh, yeah, he, he wrote that and he Ironically, he didn't put his name on the album because he thought this isn't going to go anywhere. This is just a fad. So, so maybe his judgment wasn't uh, quite so good, but he was uh, evidently very good at writing liner notes because he won a Grammy in 1975 for writing a, uh, liner notes for a classical album. 
so there, yeah. And he, he played the drunken father. So this, this story, Jim, the world's greatest is about a, uh, Jim is played by Gregory Harrison. He's a high school football star who kind of has to raise his younger brother because his father is a, is a drunk. And so it's this real serious drama, but there's a couple of lighthearted moments. And one of the moments involves this crashed hang, uh, hang glider pilot who the uh, Gregory Harrison and his little brother run into randomly. And they thought, well, who are we going to have to play this character? Well, they'd heard about this actor who was just, you know, the kind of the best actor at Long Beach Community College. They were living in Long Beach at the time. And this guy was named Reggie Bannister. Yes. And when they, yeah. So when they met him, he was, he was also a musician. He was playing a gig at a bar called the Wooden Keg. And they came and met him. And of course he bought them drinks and they were, you know, underage, but the waitress served them anyway. And they just hit it off right away. And so that's, you can find, actually, if you look up Reggie Bannister, uh, I think you can find the clip of him as the hang glider. And he's, he's very enthusiastic and he's kind of overdoing it, but I could see, you know, watching this film, I could see how that was a real highlight. So mm-hmm. Reggie bought Don and his friends who are underage beers at this. Yes. At, awesome. Yeah. yeah. And they hit it off right away and would become lifelong friends. And this, these friendships that he formed are part of the story, right? The fact that these guys are on an odyssey together, both in the story to, co- to, comp- to, to combat the tall men, but also on an odyssey to get these films made. You know, it's as compelling a, of a narrative. Okay. So the next film he made, was again very different from uh, the Phantasm movies we'll talk about, and it's a little film called Kenny and Company, and it's basically a kind of a kids' film, although he didn't really mean it to be that way. It's it's um, he was very influenced by Francois Francois Truffaut's Four Hundred Blows, which is a great movie about uh, childhood, uh, the classic French made by the classic French New Wave director, and this film is really a series of vignettes. Uh, that are disconnected. It's got a narration, so it's very much like the Wonder Years, but has elements of like the Bad News Bears. It's pretty good. I was watching this film, and I'm actually going to finish watching it because I really liked it. Um, and one of the actors he got to play in this uh, was the not the main character Kenny, but Kenny's best friend, and that is A. Michael Baldwin. And he was blown away by A. Ma- Michael Baldwin's acting, and so I think that's why he wanted to use him again in Phantasm. Uh, the other, another, a couple of other um, actors that would appear in Phantasm are Terry Calbus, who is the granddaughter of the fortune teller, who is a character in Phantasm. And she's the love interest, kind of the teen love interest of Kenny. And then uh, Ken Jones, who would play the caretaker, who's the first person to die by spear in the first Phantasm film. Nice. Uh, so, right. And then what's funny is, then he started working on Phantasm, right? He, he had, uh, Kenny and company was, uh, I should mention, I didn't really mention Jim, the world's greatest was made independently, but it was distributed by universal. And when it was made, you know, actually it was, um, I guess it was not distributed by universal. It was, but it was actually financed by universal. So during that experience, um, Don Coscarelli had to use a lot of union cameramen and stuff. And they were really condescending to him because he was 18. And uh, he he was so kind of turned off by that experience that for Kenny and company and beyond, he decided to use a very small ragtag crew, kind of similar to his student filmmaking days. And it really turned him off from the studio system. And I think that's really important that we should mention. 
Uh, for Kenny and Company, he made it independently, but he was able to get it distributed by 20th Century Fox. And it played well in matinees, but in the evenings, it didn't really make any money. And so it bombed, you know, and he was really kind of upset by this. He had met this uh, exploitation filmmaker called Paul, named Paul Leader, who made is most remembered for making the film I Dismember Mama. <laughs> I remember and, that. Uh, yeah, Paul Leader told him, look, if you're going to make your own films, you need to make some like either kind of a sex film or a horror film, because those are the kind of things that are going to make money. You can't make these kind of dramas and these childhood slices of life and these art films. You need to make an exploitation film. But ironically, at the time that this came out, this is just a funny side story I just have to include because it just amused me to no end. So he started writing Phantasm at this time because he kind of agreed with that. He said, well, I failed. I want to succeed. I really want to be a filmmaker. Otherwise, I just have to quit. But during this time, some Japanese investors saw Kenny and Company, and they basically wanted to distribute it in Japan. And they retitled it, they retitled it Boys Boys. Uh, and it and they had this whole tour. And Don Coscarelli took uh, the actor who played Kenny and A. Michael Baldwin around Japan. And they would do these things like they'd have cheerleaders all dressed up and each carrying a shield that had a letter from the movie title. Huh. And, and they'd have all these presentations. They got to meet baseball player Sadahara Oh. You know, they did this whole tour. And Kenny and Company was such a success in Japan that A. Michael Baldwin, when a Japanese magazine had listed the top stars. A. Michael Baldwin was ahead of Sylvester Stallone. And this is like after Rocky. So for a while, he was, a couple of years, he was really uh, well-known in Japan. And Phantasm was a pretty big hit there as well, probably because of him. That's funny. Uh, just this blonde kid was kind of a teen idol. It was really funny. So he started writing Phantasm. And his inspiration for Phantasm was he had had a nightmare years ago of kind of being stuck in a maze with this this uh, chrome sphere following him around. And he would kind of duck behind a wall and the sphere would disappear and reappear. So that's where we get the sentinel spheres that we're going to talk about more. Um, in addition, he had been inspired by a movie uh, that was a sci-fi movie that had come out when he was a kid called Invaders from Mars. And this plot, this movie has a very similar plot to the original Phantasm where there's a kid who's seeing some strange things, some indications of an invasion, and it's like the boy who cried wolf. No one believes him. And that's the same plot in the original Phantasm with the character of Mike seeing the tall man lift a coffin himself that weighs like a ton, you know, and then seeing the little uh, the little uh, lurkers running around and knowing and suspecting that something wrong is going on. Yet no one believes him at first. Um, the uh, other inspiration was in Kenny and Co. There is a scene where. Uh, there's a haunted house scene where there's a jump scare. And in one of the test audience screenings, Coscarelli saw the audience's reaction to that. And he thought, hey, maybe I should do horror because I'm pretty good at this, right? Uh, and then, of course, there's a famous quote. I don't know if it was Paul Leader, but someone said, no horror film ever lost money. They always make money, right? So, and then, of course, I mentioned Suspiria, right? So with that said, why don't we, uh, I don't know if you wanted to... Uh, Oh, yeah. We we did play the trailer at the end of the show. Did we want to talk about the story in more detail? Yeah. So if Phantasm, again, if you haven't seen it or you, you may have seen it a while ago, um, there's a small town and people in the town are dying under strange uh, circumstances. Uh, the The kid, the teenager kid, Mike, that we talked about is starting to, you know, 
look around at this, figure this out, uh, spy on people, um, see what's going on. The town. We should, more, we, yeah. should, we should say what kicks off the movie, right? So the movie opens with a scene in a cemetery where this foxy woman who will be known as the lady in lavender, right, is making love with this character, Tommy. Yes. Right? And Tommy gets killed by her, stabbed in the chest. And then the film opens with his friends, Reggie and Jody, going to his funeral. That's right? right. And they're talking about how he killed himself. Now, how someone could kill themselves by stabbing themselves in the chest doesn't seem very, it is possible, but doesn't seem very likely. But so they don't have any suspicions at that point. And that's kind of what kicks off uh, Mike kind of going around the cemetery, right? He's riding his little dirt bike around. Yeah. That's what kind of kicks off what you were talking about. Yeah. So it, there's all these happenings around this uh, cemetery and mortuary. And and Mike is spying on the guy who runs the mortuary, who is this, the tall man that we've been uh, talking about. And as they start to investigate, um, you know, what's all these strange happenings, Mike tries to get his older brother, Jody, involved and try to get their friend Reggie involved. And they, they start to, you know, kind of creep around looking at what's going on at this, you know, uh, mortuary. And then they find out that the tall man and his minions are, including the, the spheres, are doing a bunch of evil things. Um, and, and that is, you know, there's lots of plot points around that. But, I mean, that's essentially what happens throughout most of the movie. And in the end, you know, they're trying to, they figure out the tall man's up to no good. And then they battle the tall man and try to kill the tall man. But there's a lot of things that are happening all in between there, but you get the idea. And why I recommend you see this film, and we'll talk about this more as we discuss our evaluation of this film, is there is a plot twist in this movie that is one of the most amazing plot twists ever in history, in my opinion. This movie becomes, originally it's kind of a horror film. There's a lot of action. There's car chases. uh, But in the end, it, it turns out to be kind of a science fiction film. And we come to this white room. And I remember, I'm going to jump into this now. I was going to save this for later. But I remember when we watched this with my film club, and I didn't mention that. we I have a film club that we started at the beginning of the lockdown with some friends and acquaintances uh, that we all get on a chat and we watch movies every Saturday night. And Phantasm was one of these movies. And when this plot twist happened, I mean, people were amazed by the movie anyway, because there are several sequences. There is a sequence where uh, obviously there's the sphere, right? So there is a sequence where uh, a, the, the spheres kind of flow through the mortuary and uh, we see that the sphere is actually a weapon and two spikes come out of it and then they spike a character in the head and then a drill bit comes out and drills their, into their cranium and blood spews out you know, profusely. And this is, I don't think there was anything like this that had ever been done. This was so crazy. It was so hyper-violent and so exploitative, but affecting. And I remember people's reactions to this in the chat. And the other thing uh, that happens is we come to a part of the mortuary um, where there's a kind of a steel door that looks very unmortuary-like. And you go into this room that's just this white room, and it's kind of got this hum, and there's these two metal pylons there. And we, we see that what the metal, and there's a bunch of kind of plastic, uh, almost like barrels, right? And we see these barrels get sucked through by some force into this, into this, uh, into these two 
pylons and it basically sucks them into another dimension or another planet or another world. We don't know. Yeah. And then uh, the characters actually poke their, or get kind of sucked in and they see what's there. And it's this vast kind of Martian landscape with a bunch of the lurkers who it turns out the lurkers are actually the crushed corpses of, you know, the people who die, they become these, they, he, the tall man transforms them into these kind of dwarf, monsters and they're basically slaves in this other dimension do we right? ever and, understand why they're transformed into dwarves i never could no. track out why no i think i think we're going to have a lot of questions right we've right. seen these movies you've seen them probably multiple times i've seen the first and second one multiple times but i still have questions right uh that's the thing that's so mystifying but when this happened everyone on the chat was silent you know, normally we're kind of goofing on the movies. These are a lot of cult movies. They were absolutely silent. And one, I think one guy just said, holy shit, you know, like because this was not anticipated, right? So that's why it's a bummer if you haven't watched these before listening, because I think that impact, not know, going in and not knowing anything, it's incredible the impact that that twist has. But that's, yeah. I think that's basically the story. I mean, we can talk more about some of the sequences as we evaluate this and kind of go over our thoughts, right? Our favorite or least favorite parts of, about it. But before we do that, I want to dive a little more into the making of, right? So as I mentioned, these are low budget films. And this film was independently made and it was financed by Don Coscarelli's father. And the budget, the total budget was $300,000. And the making of this film was really a family affair uh, because Kate Coscarelli, uh, Don Coscarelli's mother, played several roles in the making of this film. She did all of the makeup. She made all of the, a lot of the costumes, like the, the lurker costumes that are kind of the Jawa hoods. She made all those. Uh, she did some of the, she did all the catering. She cooked everything for the crew. Uh, and she did a lot of the production design. Another reason why I think it's important that you watch these films before listening uh, to this, which this is the last time I'll say that because if you're this far in, it's kind of too late anyway, um, is that, uh, if you know about how the movie was made, it kind of takes away from the creepiness of the setting. Like the mortuary is all done in a warehouse, right? And the the marble and stuff on the walls is all contact paper, uh -huh. right? These are, yeah. And so if you don't know that, right, you wouldn't have guessed that. It looks great. Yeah. You know, it looks like a real mortuary. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a limited warehouse. So he's running around this maze. He's really running around the same hallway over and over again. And the way that they made it look different is they have different statuary and stuff, right? Uh, so they would just replace certain things to make it look like a different hall, but it was really a very limited space. Um, but she came up with that, right? And she's credited with, uh, you know, in the credits with all these pseudonyms, right? So, um, she also made the tall man's suit out of one of Don Coscarelli's father's suits. And she just kind of tailored it, right? Because he is tall. He's like six foot four. And they gave him these platform shoes to make him even taller, right? And I said this was a, a, a family affair. And it really was because they had a very limited crew and cast. And they all lived in the house, the Pearson house. So the house they filmed was in, all this was in Chatsworth, you know, where Gre Je Jeff actually grew up, right? So the warehouse was in Chatsworth. And nearby. they filmed this not, not right? exactly, but nearby, yeah. Nearby, right? And yeah. and uh in that general vicinity, right? Um, even though the films take place in Oregon, which I thought was interesting. I wondered why they I still don't know why they decided that. I don't know if you have any insight into that. No. Um, but uh it, so they all lived in the house, 
you know, to save money. Uh, but when you have limited resources, you have to do some risky shit. And so I wanted to tell a quick story about that. So as you know, that as I mentioned, there's a lot of car chases and there's one chase where um, this hearse driven by one of the lurkers is chasing the CUDA. And uh, there is a scene where the sunroof opens up and Jody comes out with a massive shotgun and is firing. And you see that from below, right? And so the way that was filmed was Don Coscarelli actually got in the trunk and he kind of covered himself with some foil and things because even though they were shooting blanks, blanks are actually really dangerous. Um, when you shoot a gun, a lot of shit comes out of the gun. And usually when you shoot, uh, take a camera shot from point blank range, you want to be at least 10 feet away. Well, Don Coscarelli was two feet away uh, and barely covered up in, in and hiding in the trunk. And he actually, some of the debris that came out of the gun actually set him on fire. So, so nice. that's actually how dangerous. And there are shots where they're leaning out of the car and shooting. And those shots were done by placing this expensive camera. Now, when filmmakers make a film, at least with these limited resources, they don't own the equipment. They rent it, right? So they have to keep it in good condition. Well, what they did was uh, they had taken a tray that they got from one of these old car hop restaurants, and they basically mounted the camera on that. You know, not really professional, just kind of duct tape and stuff, you know. So that's just kind of a, a clue as to how these filmmakers had to really take risks in order to get the shots they wanted to with the limited resources they had. Uh, the other thing they did for this movie is they went out to different companies and got loans for things. So the dirt bike you see Mike riding in the beginning of the film is a loaner. It was loaned by a, a, a dirt bike company. And then uh, they the guitar in one of the scenes, Jeff played the musical scene at the beginning, the duet between Jody and Reggie. The electric guitar that Jody is playing is actually a loan from Fender of a Stratocaster. And then finally, most importantly, there's a lot of drinking of Dos Equis beer in this film. It would almost seem like product placement. Well, it was. Moctezuma Brewing actually loaned them 50 cases. So there was a lot of drinking of Dos Equis Lo both on them, and off camera. Loan yeah. them? That's kind of a weird word. Gave them. I can't really loan somebody beer, right? Well, they, they yeah, they, they donated. I should they, say yes, donated, yes. right? Yeah. I mean, obviously the guitar and the, and the, and the bike were loaners. I yes. don't think they got to keep those. But the, they donated the cases, so it was kind of a um, kind of a uh, product placement, early product placement example, right? Yeah. Uh, I also just talk about the sphere because it's really an engineering miracle. Uh, the sphere was made by this effects artist uh, Willard Green, whose main occupation was making these huge turntables that they would use for car shows to kind of spin the car around. Yeah. And he he developed this sphere that actually had retractable blades and a working drill, like a motor in the sphere. And it also had a pump, like a hose that could come out the side and go down the character's sleeve and down their pant leg to a bucket of blood and a pump. And so it was actually a working piece of hardware and they paid only $1,100 for this thing. And I think it had some kind of plastic hemisphere around it that could hold all this gear, but you, you know, obviously you don't see that in the movie. Um, but it's really fascinating to me how they built this. And, you know, I will say in the later films, a lot of the spheres are CGI. And even though we know that our brain can't tell the difference between virtual reality and reality, I feel like practical effects are scarier because they're real, right? Yeah. The blood is real. It's not computerized blood. It's, it's not blood. 
but it's, you know, it's caro syrup or whatever they use, but it's like, and this is a real piece of hardware and you can, you can sense it. And they had problems filming the sphere at first. They actually put a rocket engine on it to, cause they wanted the sphere to fly, but it was out of control. They tried fishing line, but what they ended up doing was just having a guy lob it like a baseball and filming that. And they also used reverse camera techniques, right? When the sphere lands in the character's head, it's actually backwards. Right. Right. So, so they use clever little things like that. You can kind uh, of tell that it looks weird, you know, at times. Yeah. But yeah. I think it looking weird makes it weird. Yeah, right? yeah, it yeah. makes it more supernatural. Right. You can tell if you know it's backwards, you can absolutely tell. Right. Yeah. It flies in that things that are filmed backwards look weird to us. Right. It's like looking at a mirror image. It's kind of it catches your, your eye, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But to me, that makes it more surreal. So I think it works. We should talk about the music. You know, obviously the music was made by Don Myron. This was a uh, a musician and composer who had worked with uh, uh, Don Coscarelli in his two previous films. But this 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 haunting theme is so memorable. It's one of the greatest themes. It's right up there with Halloween, and I think it was really influenced more by Tubular Bells, which was the theme for The Exorcist. And it's just the music is fantastic. I actually want to get this on vinyl. I think there are some limited edition vinyl uh, vinyls out there. It's just, I don't have to pay too much for them. I would love to have this soundtrack. I think the soundtrack is incredible and really lends to the haunting nature of the film. Now, how was this? Uh, uh, I think you wanted to talk about Reggie actually in the music because Reggie, the other music that's important in the film is the music we heard at the intro. Yeah, I mean, Reggie in the clip that I played said that his music was recorded and he was sort of being generous to Bill Thornberry, who was, you know, a musician as well, of sorts, a songwriter. And they had filmed a bunch of Reggie's music in a in a shop, he said, in Alhambra, California. Well, they cut all that out. So the only music in the actual movie is that Sitting Here at Midnight song, which you know, played to, to good effect there. So it, Reggie thought that his uh, personal uh, song and music career was going to get a little boost from this movie, but it didn't really happen. But uh, that's no, all right. Reggie became a, uh, a movie star in his own right, in my estimation. So, so as to how this movie was received, um, it was a huge hit. So Don Coscarelli, through all of his perseverance, had finally made a movie that resonated with people. Uh, uh, the movie had a $300,000 budget, but box office, $22 million. That's a profitable film, right? And at one point, the movie was the number two movie in the country, right behind Alien, which was another nice. landmark film of the time. So uh, we also should mention that um, originally it was rated X. This is going to be a recurrent theme because of the excessive amount of bloodshed in the uh, sphere uh, scene that we mentioned with the caretaker getting drilled in the head. There was quite a lot of blood. Thankfully, this original scene, so this original scene had to be cut down in, in, in the original, for the original theatrical release. Thankfully, it's been restored in Phantasm Remastered. And I should mention that um, a, a former villain of one of our previous episodes, the Force Awakened episodes, J.J. Abrams, who we both criticize excessively in that episode, is kind of a hero here. He was a huge fan of the film. And in fact, the character of Phasma, who we criticize in the Force Awakens episode for being a lame-ass character. It is. With her cool look and her silver helmet, she was actually named after Phantasm because Wait. of the uh, chrome sphere. That's right? actually awesome. That. Yeah. That's actually awesome. And then the other thing is, you know, J.J. Abrams uh, met Don Coscarelli and they formed a friendship. And... 
Don Coscarelli was talking about how he was having uh, some nervousness about transferring Phantasm to 4K for Blu-ray and 4K. And uh, so J.J. Abrams offered him all the resources of his massive production company, Bad Robot, and uh, several people worked on Phantasm Remastered. So that was completely due to J.J. Abrams. So where he was once a villain, he's definitely a hero in this episode. So we should mention that. And now we're going to go because you would see in the higher resolution, all the flaws and all of the, you know, kind of fishing, all the flaws, but also just, you know, he was nervous about, uh, you know, just letting the, someone have the print because it was the one print he had, you know? Um, but yeah, exactly. You would see the flaws because there, there are some, but it's interesting in the 4k version, supposedly, uh, you can see, I didn't notice this the last time I watched it, but if you look closely at the sphere and you zoom in, you can actually see the reflection of Don Coscarelli filming the sphere. Right. Because it has a reflection in there, which is pretty cool. So, uh, I've been talking a lot, so why don't we go to you first? Although we'll kind of do a back and forth here on the film and what we think of the film. Yeah, uh, so I'm just going to first th- film. The, the funny, there's a couple of funny things about it. Is you know when you hear the actors and and people and fans even talk about the film, there's talk about the relationship between Jody and his younger brother, um, you know Mike. But one of the interesting things about it to me is the plot is Jody trying to ditch his younger brother Mike. Um, and so he is, you know, a little bit older. He's about 10 years older and, and Jody seems a little bit restless in the small town, um, that they live in. So Mike's running around, he's looking at the graveyard, he's going to Morningside Mortuary, spying on all the things that are happening, but he's really just kind of poking his nose into the, the comings and goings of his older brother, um, Mike, uh, Jody rather, and one of the things that he does is, is Jody goes to this bar um, in the first one, and it's kind of like this roadside dumpy little bar, and goes in there and picks up the uh, who becomes a lady in lavender, right? We don't know it at the time, but he goes in there, he sits down at the bar, and like like literally ten seconds later, he's walking out of the. Uh, bar to go to the graveyard where he gets it on with the lady in lavender to bad effect, because that's where, uh, you know, Jody becomes, you know, in, in the grip of the, of the tall man. Um, and so I just think it's funny. They talk about, Oh, they had this great relationship and it's such an important character, but he spends most of the movie trying to ditch his younger brother, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, beyond that, I think we covered most of the plot points and it really just sets the stage to me for the larger franchise, which we'll get into. But what are your thoughts on this first movie? Uh, I love this first movie. I think uh, it is very unique. As I mentioned, you know, it has that unique twist where it becomes a sci-fi film. I think it is an amazing example of how to uh, create a film that is a dream, a nightmare. And it it unfolds with its own kind of dream logic. You know, really, uh, it's it's a series of set pieces, right? There's, of course, the thing we didn't mention, which is um, when, uh, during one of the chases around the mortuary, uh, Mike slams a door on the tall man's hand and he ends up getting one of his fingers. Yeah, that's right. And he puts it in a box and he, he you know, he carries it home with him and it's got this yellow blood. There's this kind of mustard blood that the... That man bleeds and that his minions bleed which we'll talk more about in the in the subsequent films but uh he ends up looking at it and showing it to jody and jody's like oh yeah i believe you finally because as you mentioned he never really he dismisses his younger brother so much 
uh, but he finally believes him. And then later, when he tries to open it again, it becomes this kind of monster moth, right? It's with this crazy face and it starts sw swimming around. And I could almost imagine describing this plot as one of a dream I had. You know, I had this dream, there was this mortuary and they were taking dead bodies and turning them into dwarves. And, and this, I, you know, I, I got chased by this, this sphere and it had like a drill bit and it would drill people's heads. And, and then I, I, I stopped the guy and I slammed it and I got, you know, cut off his finger, the finger still moved. And then it eventually became a moth. You know, it's just it's a crazy dream, you know? So I really, I really like that. And I think when people watch the film for the first time without knowing anything about it, it unfolds in a way that's just absolutely shocking, but it's, it's an incredibly exciting film too. And it's re it really looks good for the limited budget they had. I think it holds up very well. What's more is um, we'll talk about this more in the sequels, but there, the original cut of this film was like three hours and he filmed a bunch of kind of character bits and a bunch of uh, interactions between the, the brothers to get their relationship down that he didn't end up using because he did a test screening and he saw that that didn't really flow. So I think he made the right choice, but he did have the footage and, and all that. And we'll get into that later and how that footage plays into one of the sequels. But I think his extra time filming these characters kind of built the relationship between them. And it's a relationship that will continue in the, in the other films. And but, I but think weirdly, like, a lot of that stuff comes out in the first movie where the relationship is Jody trying to ditch Mike. You know what I mean? Like, I think cutting out a lot of those scenes stole, like, it sort of doesn't make sense in, in, a, in a way, because I, I, I think that they're trying to say, hey, this is really close brothers. The parents had died. They were taken, you know, by the tall man when we learned. But Jody's trying to get out of the town and ditch Mike, and they're trying to say, well, they're really close, but he's always talking about ditching Mike, which I thought Okay, was I have funny. a different interpretation of that, because... The whole plot of this movie, the ending is, did it happen at all? Yeah. Was it just Mike's dream? And Mike, what ends up happening at the end is we see the scene at the, at the fireplace, you know, with Reggie kind of telling Mike, you know, your brother died. This yeah. is not, none of this happened. He died in a car crash. And so I think the scenes of, of Jody trying to abandon Mike could be subconscious manifestations of his fear of losing my, of Jody uh, and in the way that he actually did in the car wreck. Again, what is real and what is not is going to be played with so much in this franchise. But in the first film, it's so effective because you're like, what happened? But then of course the end, Mike brutally walks upstairs and, and he's attacked again by one of the tall men, you know, the tall man appears and yells boy, which we played at the beginning. And then he's attacked by one of these minions through a mirror and pulled, you know, he dies and the tall man wins. Right. Right. And so it's a, uh, it's a whole uh, play of what is real and what is not. And I think it works really well from a storytelling kind of perspective. So I, I kind of think that makes sense with Jody's reaction, but I see what you're saying. Cause it's kind of like, if these brothers are so close, why is he being such a dick to his little yeah. brother? But I think that's why. And I think, you know, that scene where we get the musical scene, right? We get the two playing um, the song, right? Uh, that all just happened organically. You know, during filming, they just kind of were messing around and they came up with this on the fly. And I think the relationship between those two guys it, it works. You kind of get the sense that the, all the guys are getting along in a way, even though there is that weird relationship between the brothers. 
So I think the amateurish acting kind of adds to it. And I think it makes it creepier, especially with the scene with the fortune teller later. There is a scene that is actually kind of an homage to the move, the, the book. Uh, the movie wouldn't come out, but the book Dune. Uh, you know, obviously Don Coscarelli was influenced by science fiction, as we know from the twist. But there's a scene where, uh, you know, Mike goes and visits this uh, this this fortune teller lady and he's trying to tell her about what he's seen and she wants him to stick his hand and this finger in this box and that's directly a scene with uh with from dune where uh the character of paul atreides is being tested by uh this this old woman right so it's kind of cool that little homage i just thought i'd throw that in there uh this movie was a huge influence on nightmare on elm street nightmare on elm street franchise was much more successful than phantasm but it owes everything to this movie the whole idea of this character that invades your nightmares right there is a scene that could have been in Nightmare on Elm Street where Mike is sleeping and he, all of a sudden, the tall man appears behind his bed. It's such an amazing scene. It's just pure black background. The tall man appears behind his bed and all these arms reach up from these graves on the side of the bed. Yeah, that's it's a so cool surreal scene. and so iconic. Uh, and I just think this movie is unsettling and creepy in a way and original in a way that no other movie is. I mean, there was nothing like The Sphere, for instance. There was nothing like that. And The Tall Man, I think, is an instant classic monster, yeah. right up there with Frankenstein or Dracula or whatever. And as far as the influence goes, there is a internet meme, uh, kind of a viral meme that came out a few years ago called The Slender Man that someone invented. And actually, I think some kids killed some other kid in real life, pretend kind of influenced by this character. And the Slender Man is the person who created it has admitted they were influenced by the tall man. Of course. So this, yeah. yeah. And and again, JJ Abrams was majorly influenced by this movie as well. Like a lot of it, it's become a cult classic for a reason. Um, and it was meant to be a standalone film. And we'll talk about whether that makes sense for the, the sequels or not. But I think my overall uh, judgment of this film is I'm very long on the film. I'm going to rank the films as we go along. You can rank them at the end if you want, or you can rank them as you go along. This is my number one. There's no question that this is my number one of, of the films. Um, I think it's by far the best of the films, uh, but I do like some of the other films quite a bit as well. So that's Phantasm I'm One. I'm going to save mine to the end. So Yeah, save yours to the end. I'm interested. All right. Um, Phantasm 2 came out in the late 80s here. I'm going to play the trailer, and we'll talk about this one. For 10 years, the secret of Paragord Cemetery has remained a mystery. Now, three innocent people are about to discover the ultimate evil. You think that when you die, you go to heaven. You come to us. We've got to warn people. This summer, the ball is back. Phantasm 2. It's only a dream. It's a dream. No, it's not. Rated R. There. Phantasm 2. Which so was Phantasm a very different movie, right? Right, very different. But we're going to talk about this 
I guess. Oh yeah, we want to talk. Sorry, I'm messed up. We want to talk about the plot first, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you get the idea. Uh, you know, the uh, it happens about ten, eight, ten years later. Um, Mike is a mental patient in an institution. He still has nightmares about the tall man. Remember what Slip said at the end of the other one. This is supposed to be a dream, um, but it, the dream has caused psychoses, right? And Mike, he is um, still having these uh, nightmares about it, and he has a um, premonition of, you know, that something bad is going to happen to Reggie and Reggie's family. And we should he, talk, though, about how the movie starts, right? He's, isn't it he where he's trying to talk his way out of the mental institution, right? No, he's, it starts where the last one left off. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. right. Remember, just yeah, like yeah. Our, so it starts where yes. him and Reggie are at the fire again, right? Yes. And they're, they're talking about Jody being dead. And then, of course, yes. Mike goes upstairs, is nabbed. And immediately we cut to Reggie, right? In that same scene, he's, he hears what happens upstairs. Right. And then all of a sudden, all of these lurkers start attacking him. Yes. It's so awesome right. because it's filmed like nine years later, but it's Reggie just taking off. I mean, I think this is one of my favorite things is how they start where the last one left off because all of these, it's, it's immediately a big action scene with Reggie having to fight all of these little dwarf creatures that just start attacking the house. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty funny. It, it, I mean, this movie has a very different vibe to it, and it's sort of a, an absurdist comedy in in some ways as well, which we'll which we'll get into. But anyway, the the net net, and it's hard to talk about a movie plot, uh, a two hour movie, you know, in a few minutes if you haven't seen it. But the plot is basically, you know, uh, Mike gets out of the institution, and he is, uh, you know, tries to uh, save. Um, you know, Reggie's family by going to Reggie's, hey, your family's in danger. The tall man's gonna, you know, blow up your family or get your family, and they're too late. And there's this huge scene where, you know, Reggie's uh, house is blown up, presumably with his family, whom we've never met in the movies, uh, and gets his family. And the rest of the movie is sort of a road movie where, you know, Mike and, and Reggie go on the road to try to uh, battle the tall man. Um, across different landscapes and time and, and all that. So we should um, we should say uh, there's also a parallel plot of a girl yes. who is named Liz. And she is, uh, you know, we, we learn that Mike might have some uh, powers. You know, he's got some kind of ESP and he's got this weird connection with this with this girl. And the girl starts seeing visions of him and of the tall man. Right. And it and while all this is going on. While, while Mike and Reggie start hitting the road to chase the tall man through the desolated towns he's left behind in Oregon, we have this woman who has these visions of Mike, and she is also um, going to her grandfather's funeral, and of course, who should come and pay a visit to her and her family but the tall man you know, the grandfather eventually becomes reanimated and possessed. and Which is an awesome a, scene. It's an awesome scene. There's a priest uh, who is also combating the tall man, and he has a confrontation with the tall man that is really good. He also has a confrontation with one of the spheres that lops his ear off. Um, but that, but eventually these two threads meet. You know, they they come to a particular mortuary. They see, uh, they see uh, uh, Liz the character of Liz, but it's really not her. And there's a great practical effects scene where uh, this kind of lurker comes out of her back. Um, 
And, uh, you know, but they, but they battle the tall man, you know, it's basically an action film. Right. And they battle the tall man and Reggie's now has a four barrel shotgun. There's also a scene where he uses a chainsaw, there's a chainsaw battle. You know, it's really a lot of action sequences. Um, And, uh, you know, it's, it's much more kind of an action film than the first one. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, I, I do think, and we'll talk about this in a few seconds here when we talk about the casting, but the tone of the movie to me is very different. The look of it is very different. And that makes sense just given the history of how it was created and filmed and, and how it came about. Which we'll so, talk about. Yeah, why don't Which you talk, talk about, about that yeah. now? All right. Before we talk about that, though, um, we should mention that they also meet a hitchhiker who we do get a glimpse of. If you, if you pay close attention, you'll notice that she is also a corpse in one of the scenes, in the scene of the, of the morgue, of one of the scenes. And uh, her name is Alchemy. And uh, this, is, this is kind of the first time where we get to see a, a recurring theme that Jeff is probably going to talk a lot more about, of Reggie's love life, right? Yes. So he, he has a, a, a kind of love scene with this character. It turns out the character is a manifestation of the tall man, as was the lady in Lavender in the first film. It's implied. They don't do any kind of morphing. This is pre-CGI. They're just cuts. Uh, you know, they were limited. And the film kind of ends in this climax with um, them escaping from the tall man, thinking they killed the tall man uh, by kind of uh, putting acid in his, his yellow, transfusing him with acid-infused mustard blood. In one of the scenes, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the details of these scenes as we go into kind of our, our, our opinion on the film. But that happens. They think they've, they've gotten rid of the tall man, but it turns out the tall man's just replaced by another one, right? Yeah, and so, can't kill uh, the bad guy. You can't really kill him. And the, uh, it ends with this kind of chase in this hearse or them kind of escaping in the hearse with alchemy driving and alchemy kind of turns to Reggie at the end and peels some of her forehead off and that shows she's evil. And then uh, she kind of changes into the tall man. And then, uh, you know, at the, the final seek, the final scene is the tall man bursting through the back window of the hearse to attack Mike and Liz. And he's saying, uh, maybe this is just a dream. And the tall man says, no, it's not. And it just abruptly ends. Right. So that's where we leave it off on, on the second film. Uh, I should go into a little bit of the background of Don Coscarelli after Phantasm. So you would think after this massive success, right, this huge profit, millions of dollars, that studios would be knocking down his door to make a film uh, but or to make a Phantasm sequel, right? Uh, he was not interested in a Phantasm sequel originally, so he that was not in the cards, but he wanted to do a different kind of film because he didn't want to be typecast as a horror filmmaker. So he he put together this film called Beastmaster, which was based on a book by Andre Norton. And, uh, you know, Beastmaster would become a phenomenon in its own right. And it, uh, there's even a joke about it. I don't remember if it was Dennis Miller or who came up with this joke, but it was like HBO stands for Hey Beastmaster's on because Beastmaster, <laughs> while not a success in the theater, was a huge success on home video and a huge success on cable and ended up making a lot of money. Right. That's a story on its own. But it's kind of interesting that he went from Phantasm to Beastmaster. It was yet another success. Yet no one was knocking down his door for offers, except for um, a couple of things he did get uh, 
you know, people coming at him for. Uh, one of them was a, a, a film version of Stephen King's uh, novella, Silver Bullet. I forget, it's like, I think the novella is called Cycle of the Werewolf, and it's one of, in one of his anthologies. And he was approached by a uh, renowned producer, Dino De Laurentiis, to make a film of Silver Bullet, but they eventually had uh, disagreements on some of the key uh, scenes and the screenplay. So that was sort of, uh, you know, he was taken off of that and they made a movie with somebody else. But he was also approached by Ronnie James Dio. So Ronnie James Dio needed someone to make a, a video for Last in Line and he loved Phantasm. Uh, by the way, Motorhead also loved Phantasm and the song Ace of Spades is named after the character Mike's hair. So Mike's got this really, a lot of people thought Mike was a girl, I think when they first saw the movie. Yeah. He's got this really long hair and his hair is kind of, and you know, Lemmy said, it looks like an ace. It's like an ice symbol, a spade symbol. Um, so they called it Ace of Spades. Believe it or not, that's fucking how that song was created. Wow. Because uh, they'd all seen Phantasm, yeah. I think we need so, to talk about your Lemmy impression, though, because I think that's pretty good. We're going to have to do Well, we're going to do a fucking Motorhead episode, dude. Yeah. we got to do a Motorhead episode. All right, there's going to be a reenactment episode where you're, so you're going to have to do you know? Lemmy. I just going to yeah. say, no, yeah. So the Dio Last in Line video is hilarious. You know, it's, it's like the character... The main character played by actor Mino Pellucci. He was in the show, probably most known for, he was in the Bad News Bears TV show for a while. He was in the show Voyager, uh, Voyagers. The time, well, the yeah, time. and you mentioned uh, Blank Guns Are Dangerous. The guy That's right. who, who uh, was the star of that show, John Eric Hexum, killed himself accidentally with a blank With a gun. blank. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um but he's the star, right? And he goes to hell and there's all these incredible sequences in hell with like kids having to play video games forever, like chained to video games and stuff. And there's, of course, uh, the mascot of Dio Murphy, who is like, or Murray, sorry, I got that wrong. It's Murray, who's like the character who appears on the cover, covers of both Last in Line and Holy Diver. You know, there's this big uh, model of him over ruling over hell. It's worth a watch. Maybe we'll link to it on YouTube. We'll probably have so many links, though, for this. We may not um, in the show notes. He also made a movie called Survival Quest, which is one of these kind of survivalist kind of movies, and it's more of an action film. That's most notable because of a couple of production assistants that worked on the film. Uh, you know, a young filmmaker, aspiring filmmaker named Quentin Tarantino and his buddy Roger Avery. And, of course, Roger Avery will play a part later in our, in our narrative here about the making of these films. Uh, Universal actually was headed at the time by a guy named Universal Studios, a guy named Tom Pollock, who was a, a incredible horror fan. And he started buying up franchise. He wanted to make horror films. And he was responsible for making the third movie in the Evil Dead series, uh, Army of Darkness. And he was also responsible for, you know, getting the Child's Play series for Universal, right? And he approached Coscarelli about making a Phantasm film. And so this would be the biggest budget Phantasm film. It would be a studio film, and it was budgeted at $3 million. But at the time, $3 million was fucking nothing, right, right? For, a, for a horror film and for all they had to do. So they still had to deal with... Um, they still had to deal with uh, some obstacles into getting all the stuff they wanted to do. But you'll notice this film was a lot more practical effects and it's got a lot more uh, going on. Uh, it is a, um, you know, we'll talk about some of the, some of the stories for the making of, but the other problem you have with universal becoming involved is studio interference. And so that led to some issues right away. 
And Jeff, maybe you can take this part. Yeah. So the studio didn't really uh, maybe appreciate the charm of the and the skills of the actors in the first uh, movie. And the studio was approached, went to Don and said, hey, you know, we think you should recast the main roles in this movie um, of Mike, um, played by Michael Baldwin, the Mike uh, Pearson character, and Reggie. And Don uh, Corsarelli, how do you say it? Coscarelli. Coscarelli, yes. I'll never get that right. Coscarelli um, was like, yeah, no, we want to keep the original people. And and the studio was like, no, we really think that we want to cast working actors, uh, you know, in the role, sort of, you know, throwing some shade on, on the original. And they went back and forth and, you know, the, you know, Don was basically like, uh, all right, I got to save Reggie because there's no movie without Reggie. Like Reggie is, you know, the heart and soul of these movies, but they're like, okay, well maybe we can recast uh, Mike. And they, uh, re- you know, started to cast this role. And eventually they wound up with uh, James Legro, who is, you know, an actor who was pretty hot at the time, but didn't, you know, has been in things, but didn't go on to, to that all that much. Um, but the other person who they were going, you know, who's like neck and neck with, with Legro for casting was Brad Pitt, um, <laughs> which is really kind of funny. If you think about it, he, yeah. he came very close to uh, being the star uh, of this movie. And, you, you know, it's also kind of amusing. You know, one of the you mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street, just as an aside, um, one of the stars of Nightmare on Elm Street, if you recall, was Johnny Depp. You That's know, right. it was like one That's of his right. first movies. So. Uh, Brad Pitt could have been gotten his start, you know, or one of his early things could have been uh, Phantasm too. The other thing when they were trying to talk about recasting Reggie, and again, Don was able to to save uh, this. Believe it or not, they wanted to recast Reggie with Jeffrey Tambor. Oh, my God. That like, would be, it's just so wrong. It's so wrong. Can you imagine his sort of like, you know, uh, George Sr. from Arrested Development yes, or yes. that same character who always plays in like the Hellboy movies and like all that. It's like as Reggie, it would have been like the dumbest thing ever. Like, or yeah. I, I was thinking about when I read this, I was thinking about him, his wacky character in the Roper spinoff that we talked about. In episode yeah, I, could, I pictured that character more than I pictured uh, Pop Pop from uh, from Arrested Development. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it, it's just so wrong as a kind of hipster, laid back guy. Yeah, it just doesn't work at all. Yeah. Flash I, action hero, right? Doesn't. I mean, work. I actually think the fact that he kept was able to keep Reggie saved this franchise. Like, oh, absolutely. Had they, had they recast Reggie, this movie would have been a disaster. It wouldn't have worked at all, and the movie and the franchise would have been dead. So the fact that he saved, you know, Reggie Bannister into casting um, was really important. The other thing about the the recasting is the actor uh, A. Michael Baldwin. Um, this is kind of a funny story. I think this is a funny story. If A. Michael Baldwin is listening, he wouldn't think it's such a funny story. But um, you know, Don went to Baldwin and said, "Yeah, you know, they're thinking about maybe." recasting but you're you know you can uh, you know uh, try out for this audition for it and he's like all right i'll you know i guess i'll audition for my role you know i'm i'm mike you know and they're like yeah you need to re-audition for it of course he re-auditioned for it didn't get it they were going to cast james Lego or brad pitt and michael baldwin to this day is completely butthurt about it and angry about it 
and just, you know, rolls his eyes about it. And, and it was like, it soured him on Hollywood and all this uh, kind of stuff. And I, I kind of think it's a little bit, uh, you know, sad and funny all at the same time that this is sort of how um, the movie industry works. But, you know, that's just an aside there. So why don't you continue? Yeah. So the other thing that the studio interfered with is they demanded that the audience know what's going on at all times and why things are happening, which, of course, is very anti the first movie. And they also said no dream sequences and dreams are a key part of this series. Right. So it was very limiting. And what we end up with is a, a film that's much more like the Evil Dead series. It's much more comedy action. Uh, but at the same time, we'll talk about this. I think it works. And um, the fun fact is Sam Raimi was really good friends with Don Coscarelli at this time. Sam was a huge, they were huge fans of each other, right? Um, Sam Raimi's use of practical effects is, I think, unparalleled. I think his, you know, I don't think anyone beats the, the first couple Evil Dead. Actually, I like all the Evil Dead movies. I'm a huge fan. And I think some of the some of the visuals in that are just so idiosyncratic and humorous and you know, of course, the second film is an absolute comedy masterpiece. You know, it's probably the best known horror comedy film ever made. And it made a huge impression on me at the time. And I think yep. it made a huge impression on horror in general. I think you saw the Freddy movies become more comedic after that film. And this movie was definitely directly influenced by that. And they were in discussions at the time because I think they traded kind of, uh, you know, uh, secrets, you know, uh, kind of tricks of the trade. Uh, because they were both uh, limited in their resources at the time. Now, Raimi had become kind of more popular. He was making Darkman at this time. and uh, But he wanted to be in the film. He wanted to be featured in Phantasm. So fun fact is there is a scene where you see this rotting corpse and you see kind of this name, kind of this uh, cemetery. I guess it's like the the plaques. And it says Sam Raimi. You can see it in the film. Uh, but of course, you know, he thought, Don Coscarelli thought, you know, this is not going to be, no one's going to remember who Sam Raimi is. This was long before Spider-Man, and now we have uh, Doctor Strange, you know, and he's this huge director. Right. Um, one, one story I wanted to share. So there's a lot of stories about how they did the effects, and obviously one of the things they did is they kind of upped their sphere game for this film. You know, there's a golden sphere. Uh, there are multiple spheres with different kinds of drills and different kinds of weapons. There's even a laser one that kind of has a lightsaber effect. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's a little, you know, it, they're just like, well, let's one up the original. Let's, you know, we have more money. We have more budget. Let's just throw money at this movie and do what we can to up the uh, number of effects and make it more exciting. But one of the things that happened is they were filming some of the scenes in the Angeles, Angeles National Forest. And they had one of the crew drive all of the equipment. They had all their camera equipment, all the tons of gear in this truck down this downhill road. Midway on the drive, it became like wages of fear slash sorcerer. Real life, the brakes went out. So this guy is having to stressfully drive this. And when he hit the bottom, he had to decide whether to crash into some pedestrians or someone's Cadillac. He ended up choosing the Cadillac. And between the damage to the Cadillac and all the damage to the equipment in the truck, it was like $400,000 worth of damage, which is more than the budget of a couple of these films. Yeah, right. (laughs) So... The good news is the trucking company, you know, was liable. So they didn't have to pay the money. Now, this film uh, was the reception. Let's talk about the reception. So as we'll discuss, there's, you know, Don Coscarelli has had a lot of bad luck. One of the pieces of bad luck he had, uh, you know, he had good luck with the original Phantasm, but with Beastmaster, unfortunately, it had the misfortune 
of being released right after another movie called Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> and thought it was a ripoff, but it was made at the same time, right? We talked yeah. about some of the similarities with the Jawas and Star Wars. It seemed like maybe Phantasm was ripping those off, but Phantasm was filmed at the same time as Star Wars, so that couldn't have been, right? Right. So uh, it, he just had the misfortune of having Beastmaster come out and look like just a, a cheap ripoff of Conan. And then he also had the misfortune of Universal having another film that was delayed for summer release. Because normally what they would do with horror films, especially lower budget horror films, is they'd release the mirror to Halloween in the fall. So they wouldn't have to compete with all these summer blockbusters. But one of the films, I don't know, the, I don't remember the film. One of the films they planned to release in the summer was delayed. So they decided to just shove Phantasm out in the summer. So it completely died a quick death at the box office. It did not uh, do very well. It made $7.3 million. Which isn't bad, but, you know, when you consider advertising and all the other stuff, you know, it's really not very profitable compared right. to the first film. Again, it was originally granted what was now what, what had been replaced, what had replaced X, which was called NC-17. It was originally granted an NC-17 rating by the ratings board because of all the blood. So he had to cut a few things again and compromise. The general consensus, I think, at the time it was critically panned. Unlike the first film, which was pretty well reviewed, it got sort of, you know, a little bit mixed, but mostly good reviews. This film was panned, right? And no one really liked it at the time. Uh, and But it did really very well on home video and cable. And in the general consensus now is it's probably one of the better horror sequels ever made. Uh, most horror sequels aren't very well regarded. You know, obviously Aliens is a huge exception and Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. Uh, but, you know, the Friday the 13th sequels are, uh, well, the second one's pretty good because that's the first Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 is widely panned. It's terrible, right? Yeah, but, Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street Part 2 is awful. The first one is actually really solid and scary. Yeah. The, the and the third one, one is, is pretty popular. That's the one where Nancy comes back. And, yeah, there uh, are Patricia some that are Arquette's well, yeah, Dream Warriors is definitely well regarded. There are some that are well regarded. But I think in general, if you list the best horror sequels, Phantasm 2 usually comes up as pretty favorably reviewed. So let's talk about these films. Why don't you uh, take it away? Uh, yeah, so you mentioned the alchemy character. I So he, she was a hitchhiker, picked her up. She They called her Kemi, played by an actress named uh, Samantha Phillips. And this movie starts what becomes a bit of comic relief for the rest of the series, which is Reggie trying to get laid. And the the Sam uh, Phillips actress, the alchemy character, is an uh, attractive young woman, way younger than Reggie, which is, again, a theme um, in all of these. And Reggie is unabashed about trying to uh, get it on with Kemi. One thing I, I want to say about this, however, which is sort of strange, and I don't know if you noticed this, but this, you know, in the timeline, maybe it's days or weeks before Reggie's entire family is blown up. Is that years before or is it like I can't keep track of it. But earlier in the movie, Reggie's... it's years before. Right. So okay, his yeah. family is blown up. Uh, his family is. Oh, no, no, no. I think his family is right. It's James LaGrosse. During yeah. that scene, right. Yeah. So it's right then. So his family. So so Reggie's family is blown up. And like days later, he's trying to get laid with Kemi. Which is kind of well, weird, right? The whole world is falling apart in these movies and he never <laughs> stops trying to get laid. So, 
I just thought that was that was strange. I, I do want to play. He's a living little... in a waking nightmare, and all he wants to do is anytime he sees a woman, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I've, I've got to I've got to try to get her into the sack. I I want to play uh, the actor Angus Scrim talking about Reggie and his and his women for a second. So I I, I got to It's pretty funny. Yes, the tall man does rematerialize occasionally in feminine form, it seems. Uh, at least whenever Reggie runs into a pretty girl and thinks he's made a hit, she turns out to be, uh, if not the tall man, then, then certainly one of his minions. You know, I've done the film and I still don't understand it. So I'm hoping that when I see it, I'll get a better idea because it's really weird. Uh, Mike, this is alchemy. Kimmy for short. And that's the disquieting thing about Reg getting involved uh, in, in any kind of a sexual encounter in a, in a phantasm film. Shit, Mike. Have you looked at her? Or his lack of it. It gets hard on the road. Reg, <laughs> you're thinking with your wrong head. This is all priceless <coughs> stuff, and, and it's the kind of stuff that, the, the kind of angst that Reg goes through uh, trying to find a babe. And it's, it's alchemy. Sam Phillips. And she's hot. You know, he did get some action. Yeah, you know, it was working out pretty good for Reg at that point. God, Reg, I love your head. That bedroom scene with Kimmy, Sam Phillips, it was a funny scene. She was really grabbing me, and she was really like, I'm getting like, she's slapping my head. Basically, she kept giggling. <laughs> and she'd start laughing, she'd fall off me. Uh, you know, in hysterics on the bed. And I think, really, that we worked on that pretty close to five hours. I bet. Why wouldn't you work on that for five trying hours? Trying to get a babe. Trying try to get to, a babe. Trying to get a babe. He, Dude, he's, he is Reggie. He, he is, is Reggie, Reggie right? Yeah, that's what's so, so appealing. Like, the, the, yeah. the, thing, the thing about these movies, and especially this, where it starts in the second one, where it becomes more of a comedy. Yeah, it's such a different movie, but... In a way, I like it more. And I know that's sort of sacrilege for uh, Phantasm fans who are the serious horror fans or like the first one, like you were saying, is kind of a classic masterpiece of a horror movie. And there's a little bit of the Reggie character. But in this second movie and beyond, they just go full out and make Reggie the comic relief. And he's so good at it. I just got to say that that's a huge part of the appeal to the franchise to me in this movie that scene with Kemi and and the whole thing where she's like saying, I love your head. And he's sitting there trying, you know, he's kind of wisecracking with Mike by the, where he says on the road, it gets hard. They're both by the side of the road taking a piss, you know, oh, so they're yeah. both standing with each other with their dicks in their hand. And he's saying it gets hard. That's, you know, supposed to be funny as well. And so this, to me, represents a completely different angle of these movies that I like, and I think it's funny, and I think resonates with people in a way. It's a completely different thing uh, than than the first movie. And and again, I think it's seen as an aberration by the phantasm diehards, but it's what I it really uh, appeals to me about these movies, and it, I just think it's funny. So, yeah, I don't think you're alone. There are people who like the second one the most, uh, and uh, we haven't really gone into your ranking. Maybe you'll maybe you'll uh, qualify that, but. I think this movie is really good. I think it's it's totally hold, held up and I think it's enjoyable. You know, I just don't think it's the same. It, it, like you said, it shouldn't really be uh, weighed against the first one because they're very different. Um, and I actually think that there didn't need to be any sequels to these movies. 
And I think if you tried to make a sequel that was like the first one, it wouldn't have the impact of the first one anyway. So I kind of like that they took a different direction entirely to make the sequels because I'm glad they're there. But I agree with Don Coscarelli. The first film is just its own thing. Yeah. And it didn't need to have any sequels. But if you're going to do a sequels, it makes sense to take a different angle, right? Uh, and all of these films are, I think the second and third are probably the most like each other, but the other films are very different from each other. You know, they're almost like, it's weird they're part of the same franchise. I don't think any other franchise, Nightmare has a little bit of that, you know, where things change, Evil Dead a little bit of that, but no franchise has such wildly diverging uh, plots and 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 even, even atmosphere and, uh, you know, the feeling around these movies are just completely different from each other, the, the whole uh, vibe. Uh, but I do like this movie. Um, and I think James LaGrosse is really good. You know, I have no problem with him. And I actually will talk more about A. Michael Baldwin in the in the subsequent films. But I think I like James LaGrosse probably better than yeah. him as an adult actor. And I like the way um, that James LaGrosse and Reggie Bannister work together. You know that Reggie Bannister is gradually becoming the hero of these films, but really they're a te- they're a team in this film. They're like an action team, and they're they're battling these uh, these phenomena at the same time. Now there is a little bit of the foreshadowing, but we'll see with the next films with James LaGrosse being mentally damaged by what happened in the first film. Right, he's right. in a mental institution, but he's not. He's it, you know like you said, there's that banter between him and Reggie. Reggie, that's comedic. Like he's still got a comedic side to him and there's still fun to him, which we'll see in the next films does not <laughs> happen so much. Right. And I really like that interaction between the two characters. And I think James LaGrosse does a really good job here. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously they up the game with the spheres. That's, a, that's kind of silly, but it's fun. You know, it, it's, it's just, an, you know, it, it turns it into an action film and that's just fine. Now there is a really funny uh, scene that you didn't really talk about, which is, um, or maybe you maybe you alluded to, is the interaction between Liz and and um, Mike Mike when they're when they're finally together, right? They come yeah. together, they kiss each other right away. They've been in love remotely yeah. uh, for for decades, telepathically or, or whatever, telepathically, yes. and then they have a telepathic love scene together where they're just your lips aren't moving, neither are yours. Oh, this is great, you know? Yeah. And it's so, it's like ESP love is what yeah. I call it. And it's so funny. Um, you know, it's it's pretty awkward, but it's actually kind of amusing. Um, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, the influence of Evil Dead is, is really strong here. I would argue the influence of Aliens. Alien is a very classic horror suspense film. Aliens is just pure action. You know, yeah. probably just as good in its own way as the first movie. So this is similar, right? You have a very surreal, haunting film as the first film. It's got action, sure, but this is pure action from start to finish. And it's entertaining the whole way through. And it sets the it sets the kind of um, archetype for the films to come. It's a road film, right? We're chasing the tall man through these ravaged towns that have been completely destroyed. And it's funny because the character of Alchemy doesn't even seem to be in that world, right? She's no. she's like, let's go to my father's boarding house. And it's like, wait, have you seen your fucking town? Like, <laughs> it's, like you know, yeah, it's completely it's, boarded up. There's everyone's dead, right? And there's yeah. these, uh, you know, just these little dwarves running around. Uh, the the effects the effects are really good in this movie. You can tell it's it costs more money than the original. I like the the resourcefulness and innovation of the original film. But this is, again, it looks really good. Most of the practical effects stand the test of time. 
even if they don't look realistic all the time, they have a charm to them and they add to the atmosphere of the film. Um, I would say the one downside of this movie for me is the limitations played placed by Universal. You know, obviously it would be good to see a Michael Baldwin, maybe with this screenplay, he would have done something with it. And uh, similar to James LaGrosse, it is a little jarring to see the character change, but he was a child actor. So maybe people didn't even really care uh, at the time, but the, the removal of the kind of what the fuck and surreal aspects by Universal of saying no dream sequences was kind of a, a little bit of a strike against it. But again, I really like the movie. Uh, I found it entertaining to watch. It's it's one of these I would I would definitely revisit again as a fun film. And I love the love scene between Alchemy and Reggie Bannister. It's one of my favorite in all of the movies. Yeah. Um, it's so fucking like I love your head. And she's like rubbing his bald head. And you know, he's sincerely, you know, you feel bad for the guy. He's got like an earnestness about him later he says you know when she comes back and of course he doesn't know he's about to be really disappointed that she's the tall man uh you know he says to her you know you you could have took off but you you hung in there you waited for me like he's in love yeah. you know and it's it's endearing it's really yeah. endearing and it's kind of cruel when the rug gets pulled from under him when she just rips that scab off her head and it turns out she's the walking evil dead tall man. So, yeah. And of course, I you got to mention that Angus Grimm is good in all of these movies. He just brings a class to the role. Yeah. And he is legitimately creepy. He's he great. Is. I, you know, like that, there's that uh, scene with the priest where you played the quote at the beginning. It's one of the best lines. This movie has, has a couple of the best lines in the whole series. And one of them is, you think when you die, you go to heaven. You come to us. Yeah. That's awesome. Right? Yeah, this one. That's Thank you go awesome. to heaven. You go to us. Oh, yeah. You yeah. go to us. Yeah. Yeah. You got to love that. Man. Yeah. It's awesome. It's good. I, I will continue to talk about Reggie and, his, and, and Reggie's women and them being the tall man as we get into the, in, into the others. So, hey everyone, that wraps up part one of episode 16, Phantasm. We will see you next time for part two of our epic journey into the world of Phantasm. So see you all later. Stay hot as love and see you all at Morningside. Wait. Wait.